uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARM studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. It is so good to have you with us. It is Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Uh, you know, it was funny this morning, I was looking at just some stuff. Uh, I, I don't spend a lot of time on the show metrics. I, I don't try to keep track of how many people are watching the show or this or that and the other thing. But I was looking for something, so I was on the podcast website, and I uh, noticed the video views combining... Uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch, the video views are now exceeding the audio downloads. <laughs> so there are more of you watching than there are listening. Um, but thank you for being here, whether you're watching or listening or both. Um, obviously, if you listen to Squirrel Chatter while driving, I would recommend the audio podcast over the video just for safety's sake. Just so, you know, keep that in mind. All right, this is Squirrel Chatter, a podcast that is dedicated to scripture, history, current events, and whatever else it is that I want to talk about. Um, and we do webcast live uh, via video on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch at 7.30 a.m. Mountain Time every Monday through Friday. And you can download the podcast Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, etc., etc. All the wherever you get your your podcasts, we're there. You can find us, and we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. Head on over to ChristianPodcastCommunity.com. Check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there. You're sure to find something worth listening to. And uh, this is Tuesday, so we are resuming our study Bible level Bible study of Deuteronomy. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter two today. We're going to we're going to finish chapter two. So I think we we stopped in verse uh, seven last week, and I'm or stopped in verse eight last week or nine last week, and uh, so I'm going to back up to verse eight, which is the beginning of the paragraph, and we'll pick up from there. And I'm going to finish chapter. Two. Now, I was noticing as I was putting together my study notes that, that the way we're covering it in class is not at all the way that I would be breaking this down if I was preaching it. Um, I would be identifying the, the sections, the different sections of the book, and then, you know, of course, outlining those sections and developing a sermon from them. And this is not that. This is much more, like I say, it's a study Bible level Bible study. We're going through it verse by verse and making note of, of things that we need to make note of so that we can come away with an understanding of the text 
we're not deeply exegeting the text. We're not, uh, you know, doing a, like I said, a full-on expository sermon. If I was preaching through Deuteronomy, this, the messages would have, well, they'd be messages. These aren't coherent messages. Um, they would be uh, hopefully much more coherent messages and much more structured in that way with, you know, identifying the main points and the subpoints and, and all of that. And I'm not doing any outlining like that at all. I'm basically making notes on facts in each verse. And that's, that's just the way that, and that's absolutely what I intended it to do, but it's, it's not, you know, I, I honestly, I've been using study Bibles to put it together today, this morning, I wanted to look something up. It's the first time I pulled one of the commentaries off the shelf since we started this. I've been using the MacArthur Study Bible, the Reformation Study Bible, the Schofield Study Bible, um, Ryrie Study Bible, the Life Application Study Bible, an old 1984 uh NIV study Bible, which was an excellent study Bible. I've got uh, I've got a an ESV study Bible that I actually haven't haven't broke out. Uh, most of what I've been using is stuff that I have on accordance, so it makes it easy. I can just pop up a, a screen and I'll have the text and then the study Bible notes, and that just makes it easy to go through for what we're doing. Um, like I said, this is not a full-on study of Deuteronomy in the sense that it would be if we were going to be, if I was preaching through the book. So my preparation is different. My, my uh, goal is different and all of that. Mm. The coffee is the same, though. That's good. This is Montana Coffee Traders Trailblazer Blend. One of my favorite coffees. I'm trying to think if there's a coffee I don't like other than, you know, like Maxwell House or Folgers. Uh, and Starbucks is not good. I do not like Starbucks. I mentioned that the other day. My, my wife is not a coffee drinker. And I made some comments. She's like, well, let's stop at Starbucks and get you a cup of coffee. And I'm like, there's a lot of places I'd rather have coffee than Starbucks. And she did not understand that because she has watched me drink Starbucks coffee. It's better than no coffee, okay? And it's still better than Folgers. I'm going to get angry letters from the people at Folgers, I'm sure. He's dissing our coffee. You can't do that. Yes, I can. This is a non-commercial podcast, and I can do what I want, as long as I don't break any laws, which I have no intention of doing. And if I say something that offends you, get over it. All right. Um, but I did, I have been looking at, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff going on um, just in the last couple of weeks, things that we haven't talked about on a Monday meandering. Um, the, the, the Church of England, but they've, they've just blown themselves up um, with this, Back at, we can't do gay marriages, but we can bless them after the fact. 
this is silly. Not not even not biblical, not I mean the 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 woke leftist trend has now fully moved the Church of England. Uh, they've been gone for a long time, but now they're being honest about it, maybe. But uh, I was listening to uh, uh, an Anglican Anglican Church in North America pastor, whom I follow, was talking about this in uh, his kind of Bible study that he does on Sunday mornings. It's not not the sermon that he does during the service. It's a he calls it the Rector's Forum, where he basically addresses. He kind of does a Monday meandering, um, same sort of thing, where he's talking about current events and in the light of Scripture and in the the light of the life of the church. And he was talking, of course, there being Anglican, the Church of England is the mother church, you know, in the sense that that's where Anglicanism started. So. You know, going back to Thomas Cranmer and Henry VIII and Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer and the the early English reformers, that's the genesis of Anglicanism. Now, the Anglican Church in North America has broken from the Episcopal Church and from the Church of England. Um, there's the, the Archbishop of Canterbury is not the Anglican Pope. So, you know, he's not dictating to the, the what they call the Global Anglican Fellowship is uh, um, the, the, the most of, most Anglicans outside of England and North America are biblically conservative. Um, not all by any means, and there's been huge disputes in the church in Australia as liberalism has been creeping in. So I have some, some Anglican friends in Australia and I, I keep up with kind of with what's going on down there too. But if you look at Africa, your most conservative churches are your Anglican churches. Uh, generally, you know, I'm sure you can find specific instances, but in, in general, the, the Anglican churches are conservative, Bible-believing churches. And this has been causing a great deal of trouble with the Church of England because whenever they have global conferences with all the Anglicans from around the globe, the Church of England people who think that they are the superior leaders of Anglicanism find out that they are on the outside and that it's the Bible-believing Anglicans who are driving Anglicanism globally. But the Church of England is, you know, while that was the genesis of Anglicanism, is no longer the leading force in Anglicanism because they have, by and large, abandoned the Bible as the source of authority. I mean, they still read from it. They give lip service to it they're not following it. Um, and uh, so listening yesterday to the Reverend Dr. J.D. Koch, uh, as he was talking about this, 
he made a quip about the Church of England saying that there used to be a church in England and basically that it's no longer a church. So that's been a big deal, and that's something that, that we ought to talk about in the, in the future, and that might be, it's one of the things that's on the list maybe for next Monday. Then the whole Andy Stanley thing has blown up. Um, here again, we're, we're looking at somebody who is demonstrating by his words and actions that he is not a Christian. And that thing that he is leading in Atlanta isn't a church. It's something, but it's not a church. It's not an assembly of disciples of Jesus Christ who have come to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and prayer, which is what a local church is. <laughs> it's not that. It's something, but it's not that. And so we're, we're looking at... Um, just a, a series of the, the, the growing apostasy of, of quote-unquote Christianity in the West, whether it's in England, whether it's in Australia, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in the United States. We are seeing... A, a great falling away, a, 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 a turning away from faith and from Scripture. Um, we are in a post-Christian Western civilization, which is soon to be no civilization at all, because Christianity was the shaping factor of Western civilization. It, it, you know, that's the, that was what civilized Europe was Christianity. And Christianity, you know, Europe, and, and yes, there were, there were whole, all sorts of abuses in the colonial era. And I, I'm not saying that there weren't. But Western, the, the Western world, every good thing that has come out of the West has its roots in Christianity and the Bible. Really. Uh, liberal democracy, Christianity and the Bible. Um, human rights, Christianity and the Bible. Um, the Industrial Revolution, Christianity and the Bible, specifically Protestantism, led to the Industrial Revolution. There's a topic for another day, but it's absolutely true. So as you enjoy your consumer items that you buy with money you earn on a free market, understand that that's a reflection of a biblical worldview. And all of these things are being lost to the detriment of humanity you know, and, and, and to the detriment of humanity globally because these are the things that make life more tolerable and as more civilized and they are being lost in our culture.
So we're seeing Christianity fade by the wayside. But it's Tuesday. It's not Monday. I, I just wanted to touch on a couple, several of these things because I'm just seeing, you know, just listening to the news this morning while I was in the shower. It's just like shaking my head. And uh, listening to today's uh, the briefing with Al Mohler talking about how the teachers' unions and the, the educational system is working diligently and intently to separate children from their parents and to protect the children from their parents. By that I mean, you know, we're going to teach them liberalism. We're not going to let the parents teach them anything conservative. And so we are seeing that. All right. Well, let us get into our study Bible level Bible study. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. But before we get started, let's begin with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Had a great discussion online. Here he is, squirrel. Uh, had a great discussion online yesterday about um, sin and confession. Um, somebody had, uh, I'd have to go find the tweet because I can't remember who, who posted it. Excuse me, but somebody had posted a tweet about, you know, that basically said, you can't go five minutes without sinning. And I replied, you know, because the standard is absolute perfection, none of us can go a microsecond without sinning. Because Jesus said, you know, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's the standard. Well, none of us are able to give perfect devotion to God for an instant because we're limited by our fallen human nature. And so we don't. And so there's, you know, we constantly fall short. We constantly fail to be perfect um, every instant of every day. As I joked the other day here on the podcast, you know, that even if you're trying to give full devotion to the sermon on Sunday morning as your pastor's preaching, there's a part of your mind that's wondering if you're going to beat the Presbyterians to Denny's after, after church. Um, I got a note from a, one of the listeners who, who found that humorous. So, um, and it was meant to be. But it's true. And so in this discussion, got a, got a, got a reply on Twitter or, or uh, um, the listener, uh, the, the listener or, or person reading the, the Twitter said, I have an honest question. How do I confess all this? How do I deal with the fact that I know I'm never perfect? Do, do, you know, so I, here's a couple of things just to think about. And one is the fact that it's always appropriate to confess your imperfections to God and just say, I know I'm not living up to the perfect standard. Forgive me. 
even if you're not, you know, you're not going through life thinking about, I mean, if you went through life thinking about all the ways you fell short, you'd do nothing else. And that's not the way we're supposed to live our lives. So we need to be aware of the fact that we never measure up. And we need to be living a lifestyle of confession because we understand that we always have sin to confess and that we always fall short and we're always imperfect. imperfect. But then there's the specific sins, acts of sin that we are aware of and those we repent of specifically. So our prayers of confession, when it's just us and God, because uh, as a wise person once told me long, long ago, the circle of confession of sin should not be any wider than the circle of sin. Meaning, you don't need to broadcast your every little sin to the whole world in confessing it. Um, you know, if you had an angry thought about me and you didn't say anything or do anything as a result of that thought, I really don't need to know that you were angry. Um, because, you know, it, it doesn't, it does, it, the knowledge that we had a difficulty might affect our relationship going forward. And if you already dealt with it and confessed it, you know, it was just between you and God, you know, and, and I've had, I mean, this is the sort of thing you don't have to pull over that guy who cut you off in traffic to confess to him that you had sinful thoughts when he cut you off in traffic. It's ridiculous. You confess it to God. Now, if you do something, if you commit an offense, then you repent to the person you committed the offense against. So the circle of repentance should not exceed the circle of the offense. So, you know, in corporate prayers, we're not, we don't need to confess every minute minutia of sin. Um, so, but in our individual prayers, you know, when you're aware of a sin, you confess it and you ask God's forgiveness. And, and cause we're all sinners. And so it was, it was a really good discussion. And, uh, I did bring up this prayer of confession in the discussion because I like you know, look at, look at what it says here. It says, we've strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have erred. We've strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We've followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. That's, that's in our thoughts and desires. That's not just in our actions. That's, we've thought about things that are sinful. We have desired things that are sinful. We have sinful thoughts and we have sinful desires. And don't ever think that desires can't be sinful. <laughs> they certainly can be. You know, we've offended against thy holy laws. We've left undone those things which we ought to have done. 
whether we're aware of it or not, there are things that if we were paying full attention to God's word and our walk in life, we would do because they would be good and proper to do. But we're not paying full attention to our walk in our life every minute of the day. So things get left undone, even if we're not aware of it consciously. So we pray for all of these things, that which the things that we've done that we shouldn't have done and the things that we haven't done that we should have. And so this prayer of confession that we pray every morning here on Squirrel Chatter from written by, by Thomas Cranmer in 1552. Actually, it may have been written in 1548. I wonder if it's the same prayer as in the 1548 prayer book. I'd have to look. Neither here nor there. But this 500-year-old prayer that we look at is an excellent guide to how we should approach the confession of sin, sins of omission, sins of commission, sins conscious and sins unconscious. And, and so let us now pray the prayer of confession. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, well, if you are uh, have your Bible handy, go ahead and open it to the second chapter of Deuteronomy. Let's just remind ourselves of where we are. Um, Moses is recounting the history of Israel from the Exodus to the time of of uh, Deuteronomy, so he's looking at like the last 40 years of history, and he is recounting to the um, Israelites these events. Now, he's here he's talking about much more recent events. He started off talking about, in chapter 1, talking about how they got to the promised land, they refused to go in, God said, fine, you can't go in. This generation has to die off. And so uh, then they said, oh, no, we didn't mean it. We'll go in. And they went in and they lost because they disobeyed God twice. They disobeyed him when they said, well, excuse me, said, well, dis we disobeyed him. They disobeyed him when they didn't go in when he told them to. And they disobeyed him when they tried to go in after he told them not to. 
And so they wandered off in the wilderness and, and until that entire generation had died off. And then they began, you know, God said, you've been circling Mount Sarah long enough. It's time to, to head up and take the promised land. That generation had passed off. And so now they're moving up. So this is much more recent history. This is, this is basically the stuff that got them to where they are, where Moses is talking to them. So he's talking about their, their journey back to the border of the promised land. And uh, they came to the, the land of Esau, the Edomites. Um, and they had, they had to pass by because the Edomites would not let them travel through. But God had said, you cannot attack them. You can't take any of their land. I gave that land to Esau's descendants, just as I have given the land of Canaan to Jacob's descendants, Jacob, who is also known as Israel. So we have here God's promises and God's gift of land and territory to two different peoples because God is sovereign over the earth. So backing up to verse 8, in chapter 2, we read, So we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Ser, away from the Arabah road, away from Elath, and from Ezion-Geber, and we turned and passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. So Edom had refused to allow Israel passage. They had to go around, and um, you can look at all of the details there in Numbers 20 verses 14 through 21, which we led, read last Wednesday. Verse 9. Then Yahweh said to me, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war. For I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given heir to the sons of Lot as a possession. So it's God who establishes nations and their borders and their territories. Um, so God has given Moab this land. It was right for Israel to take possession of the promised land because God had given it to them, but it wouldn't have been right for them to take land that God had given to somebody else. And God said that this, the land of the Moabites, I have given to Lot. Now you remember Lot is Abraham's nephew who journeyed with Abraham, and they split um, when they got too big. Abraham's troop had gotten too big, and Lot's troop had gotten too big because God was prospering both of them. But they'd gotten too big to travel together. Um, so they had... And by travel, I don't... Again, um, when we're talking about a nomadic, nomadic lifestyle, we're not talking about moving every day. We're talking about long-term established camps that would change every season. You know, they'd have winter pasture, summer pasture. They, they you know, the the, the 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 grazing land would become depleted. They would move on to fresh grazing land. You know, so it was a, a long, uh, long, slow wandering is the nomadic life. 
and sometimes you're in one place for months or even years before you go somewhere else. And but the bigger the group, the more widespread you have to be, the bigger territory you need, the more pasture land you need, etc. And so they had gotten too big to travel together. And so they had split. And remember that Lot had gone down to the cities of the plains, Sodom and Gomorrah, because the, the plain was fertile and, and, uh, and the cities were wealthy and, and it looked good. And then Abraham had gone the other way. Well, God had been clear in telling the Israelites what was theirs and what wasn't. What belonged to Israel and what belonged to Moab. Um, and we'll, we'll see a little bit more of that here in a minute. Then in verse 10, Moses writes, The Imam lived there formerly, a people as great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim. This is the, 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 the land of the Moabites, that these people had lived there formerly, but that the Moabites, it says that like the Anakim, they are also regarded as Rephaim, but the Moabites call them Imam. Now the Horites formerly lived in Seir, but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, just as Israel would do in the land of their possession, which Yahweh was giving to them. So Moses is giving this little parenthetical about the history of the land regarding the peoples and the histories of the area. So he's got the, the, the Imam who had been displaced by the Moabites, that the Moabites had come in and taken the territory that had formerly been the Imam who had lived there. The, the um, Edomites had taken the land of the Horites, who had lived around Seir, um, they had dispossessed and destroyed them. So we just get this little area of the of the the people in the areas, and we don't know a lot about these people now. We just don't. Um, this was a long time ago. You know, this is over three thousand years ago, and we do not have a lot of knowledge of these people. They had been displaced from before the book of Deuteronomy was written. And so while they, they may have had more knowledge of these people than we do, that was 3,000 years ago. So now the word Rephaim literally means terrible ones. This is descriptive of tall and powerful peoples, and we're not talking about a single ethnic group. So the Rephaim are not a people, it's a description of several people. Certain ethnic groups, like the Anakim, like these Imim, were called Rephaim. The, the Anakim are also called giants. And their presence in Canaan was one of the things that filled the, the Israelites with fear. When the spies came back from that first, uh, 
you know, 40 years previously when the spies had come out, out of the land, one of the things that they had talked about was the fact that the Anakim were there. There were giants in the land. And the people were frightened. And we see that, you know, uh, I have no plan of, of dealing with the subject of giants this morning. Um, but Scripture is clear that there were giants in the land. And there seemed to have been giants more prevalent in ancient time. Now, these giants are not a separate race of people. Okay? It's not... Uh, the, the giants are not a separate race of people. These are families who are extraordinarily large and physically powerful. Um, and by families, I mean large extended families, which is what we call nations. Um, these are, these are big and strong and powerful people and scripture talks about them. They were real. They, they existed and they were especially, this is, see, we, we have gotten away here in the Western world. We don't live in a world that is dominated as much by sheer physical strength. Um, other than a few very limited occupations, sheer human physical strength matters much less to us than it did thousands of years ago, even hundreds of years ago. I mean, go back, go back a hundred years. Being physically strong was much more important to a person's livelihood a hundred years ago than it is now. And the reason we have technology and machines that have taken a lot of the physicality out of our labor. Um, you know, we don't have to live, lift as much heavy stuff ourselves. We have machines to do that. And, and so, um, you know, the, the physical strength is not as important now as it was, you know, 3,000 years ago. So the fact that these people were physical giants who were strong, etc., and and I forget, how, how tall was Goliath supposed to be? Seems to me he was like over nine feet tall. Big boy. You know, I mean, this is... He, he would he would dwarf most NBA players. You know, I mean, guy's seven foot. He's a big NBA player. Um, nine foot is almost unthinkable. And so we don't see... I mean, I don't even think Andre the Giant was that tall. Um, and, of course, he had a, a medical condition that caused him to grow that large. Um, but these people were naturally that large, genetically that large. And they were strong and they were powerful. And that was a big deal in a muscle-powered society. And so you can see why that would cause fear and trembling, you know, and so, you know, like I said, I didn't want to talk about the subject that much, but they're there, and Bible talks about them. Um, that might be a good discussion for some place, some other time. 
Verse 13, now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourselves. So he crossed over the brook Zered. So just as the Jordan was the border of the land of Canaan, this Zered brook was the border of Moab. So geographic borders um, have often been defined by most often rivers and ridgelines. Those are the two things, you know, bodies of water and ridgelines. Rivers and ridgelines are great natural borders. You cross that river, you're in another territory. You go over the ridgeline and down the other side, you're in another territory. Um, these are natural boundaries that uh, you can see how that would work because you can, you know, it's, you know, everything from this river to that mountain belongs to them. And you would just, it would make sense. Verse 14. Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years, until all the generation of the men of war came to an end from within the camp, as Yahweh had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of Yahweh was against them to bring them into confusion from within the camp until they all came to an end. 38 years. This is the time between the... Uh, um, failure to enter the promised land and returning to enter the promised land. Um, we always talk about the 40 years in the wilderness. Well, it was, they, remember that after the Exodus, they spent two years at Mount Sinai, then 38 years wandering in the wilderness for a total of 40 years. And, and generally we just round it up and talk about, you know, the 40 years of wandering. Um, it, but that simply would mark the time from the Exodus to the beginning of the conquest. Now, verse 15 shows us God's judgment against that generation that it extended beyond just not allowing them into the promised land. Look what it says there. It brought, he brought them, Yahweh was against them, to bring them into confusion from within the camp until they came to an end. Now, we do not know exactly what that confusion was. Did they continually make stupid decisions that led to early deaths? Yeah. Just like a seriously accident-prone generation that was just making foolish decisions? We, we don't know. Now, we know that they rebelled against Moses' leadership several times during those 38 years. And, and at sometimes God sent plagues upon them. You know, there were, there, were, there were direct acts of God's judgment against them. All of that's in the book of Numbers. Um, interesting study to look at that goes beyond our scope today. But we're, we're not given enough information to go on here about what this confusion meant. But it wasn't just that God waited for them all to die off. There's, there's a more active role that God is taking here in filling them with confusion, um, which I just take to mean that they, they just did stupid stuff that got a lot of them killed. You know, in the, in the vernacular, a bunch of hold my beer stuff, you know, 
here, hold my beer. I'm going to do, do something stupid. And I think that's what we, we see hinted at there. All right, verse 16. So it happened when all the men of war had come to an end in death from among the people, that Yahweh spoke to me, saying, Today you are about to cross over Ar, the border of Moab, and you will come opposite the sons of Ammon. Ammon. Do not harass them nor provoke them, for I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot, as a possession. So just as the Moabites are descended from Lot, the Ammonites are descended from Lot. And in both cases, God has said to Israel, their land is not for you. Their land is for them. Pass through, pass by. Don't take any of their land. Now, if you remember when Lot fled from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, see Genesis 19, um, there occurred one of the biggest ew moments in the scripture. By the time Lot gets to the cave where he was going to hide during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and actually I think there were five cities total, that were destroyed, the cities of the plains, the chief cities among them being Sodom and Gomorrah. When they got to where he was hiding, it was just he and his two younger daughters. He apparently had two older daughters who were married in Sodom. Was it Sodom or Gomorrah? I don't remember which town he was actually in. I haven't gone back and reviewed that. But whichever, whichever city, Sodom or Gomorrah, I think it was Sodom, where Lot lived with his family, his two older daughters had been had gotten married, and they and their son and his son-in-laws refused to come with when they fled. So Lot fled the city with his wife and his two younger daughters. Lot's wife, we recall disobeyed God and turned back and looked and she was turned into a pillar of salt. So by the time Lot gets to the cave where he's hiding, it's him and his two daughters. And in a clear example of how the sexual immorality of the society had affected Lot's daughters, and I'm trying to put myself in their position and kind of think about it from their point of view. They have just watched their home be destroyed. Well, they didn't watch, but I mean, they, their home had just been destroyed. Not only their home, but the whole area. Honestly, I, I, I'm firmly convinced that the Dead Sea Valley was this valley. And it's an utter ruin today. And even the, the Dead Sea itself, I think it was, this was a huge catastrophe. Um, I would not be surprised to, to learn when I get to heaven and can ask <laughs> that the, the cities 
are actually at the bottom of the Dead Sea now, that this was that big of a calamity. So these girls have watched their sisters die. They watched their mom die. They watched their homes destroyed utterly. And so there, there is a great deal of despair, and they are, they are looking at the fact that all of their, not just hopes, but all of their opportunities are now gone. And they grew up in this sexually immoral environment, and that affected them. Um, this is something that has become much more clear to me as I've grown older as I look at how the sexual mores growing up in the late 70s, early 80s affected me, even though I was raised in the church, but popular culture, the movies I watched, the TV shows I watched, the attitudes of my friends from school, how that shaped my own attitudes towards sex and towards marriage and romance and all this, that, and the other thing. And I've, I've joked in the past that, you know, a lot of what I learned about sex, love, and marriage, I learned from the love boat. And I don't mean that facetiously. I mean it to be humorous, but I don't mean it to, I'm not exaggerating. Those, those attitudes that were popular in that are portrayed in popular media affected how my, how I thought and popular media is much worse now than it was then. Um, and I think popular media is approaching if it hasn't already surpassed the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah and it's affecting our kids, even in the church. Um, and, and that's something that, needs to be taught against and ameliorated. Uh, I don't think absolutely sheltering our children from the culture is the, is the whole answer because we need them to be in the culture but not of it. But we need to make sure that our influence and the Bible's influence on the lives of our children is greater than the culture's influence on them. And that's, there's a lot of things that can be done there. So anyway, Lot and his daughters end up in a cave in the mountains. His daughters say to each other, you know, well, now all of our husband prospects are dead. We're never going to get married. We're never going to have children. So they hatched a scheme to get their father drunk, have sex with him, and get pregnant by him. And that's what they did. Like I said, it's one of the biggest ew moments in the Bible. Now, this is one of those things that the, the Bible is not commending this <laughs> by any means. The Bible is um, uh, simply reporting what happened. And... Uh, so this is what they did. And so the oldest daughter had sex with her dad, got pregnant, and named her son Moab. 
the name Moab means from father. So I mean, she's just like flat out in the face that, yeah, this is my dad's kid. Uh, but the Moabites are the descendants of Moab, the son slash grandson of Lot. The youngest daughter, then scripture says, did the same thing. And she had a son that she named Ben-Ami, son of my people. And so the Ammonites are the descendants of Ben-Ami. So the Moabites and the Ammonites are descended from Lot and his daughters. And I think we've said enough. Verse 20. It is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for Rephaim formerly lived in it. But the Ammonites call them Zamzuman, a people as great, numerous, and tall as the Anakin. But Yahweh destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, just as he did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. And the Avim, who lived in villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and lived in their place. So here we have another short recounting of the history of the region before the Israelites arrived, the peoples who had been there, who had been driven out, some that were still there. Um, the, the Avim, I could find nothing about. We, we just know zero about them. Um, but we know that they lived in Gaza, which is southwest Canaan, um, which we now talk about in modern Israel, the Gaza Strip, which is one of the Palestinian areas in Israel. And then it talks about the, the Kaftorites from Kaftor. Kaftor is the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. The Cretans had an early seafaring empire that we know as the Minoans. Um, we, know, we call them the Minoans because of Greek mythology, where Greek mythology were told that Minos was the, the king of Crete. So the Minoan civilization is named after Minos, who was most likely a mythical figure, although there could have been an actual real King Minos that uh, led to the, the mythal, mythical figure. So the, the Kaftor is Crete, and the Cretans had an early seafaring empire that spread all over the western Mediterranean. And the later, the Philistines, who... Israel was to have so much trouble. The Philistines, who have given their name to modern Palestine, even though none of the people that live there are actually descended from real-life Philistines, um, the, the Philistines were also from Crete, part of the same... So Kaffirites and Philistines were part of the same people group. Um, they were the seafaring peoples who had settled the coastal area there. Uh, interesting, 
and totally off subject and not anywhere in my notes, um, which I probably shouldn't do because we're running late, but we'll keep going. Um, the word, the name Philistines, the Romans gave, or Palestine, the Romans renamed the Roman province of Judea. They renamed it Palestine after the Jewish revolt of 70 AD. It was part of the destruction of Israel that they changed the name. And they intentionally chose the name of Israel's most implacable historic enemy, the Philistines. So not only did they destroy Jerusalem and the temple, they were even erasing the name, um, which has led to some modern problems. Verse 24. Arise, set out, and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and provoke him to battle. So this is the start of the conquest of uh, Heshbon and and uh, the area. This is the this is the first people that they've come to in their journey back to the promised land, where God says. Yeah, we're going to fight these people and you're going to take their land. Now, I'm going to stop right here and we will do uh, chapter 224 through chapter 3, verse 11 tomorrow because that is the beginning of the conquest. And we've already been going for an hour, so we're just going to hold off there and, excuse me, pick up, excuse me, right there tomorrow. So, scroll down. Let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for Tuesday, the 24th of January. I hope you have the best of days. Whatever you're endeavoring to do today, may it go well for you. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.